looking today at chapters 9 and 10. And I've got to tell you, friends, I am really excited for this section of Scripture we're going to look at today. Because today's chapters highlight for us three of the most exciting truths in all of Scripture. And what we're going to find today as we look at each of these three truths individually is like those giant spotlights that businesses use to draw your attention, these three truths ultimately come together to highlight the great promise that God is in control and God is good. So here's what I want to do this morning. We're going to look at a few sections today out of 1 Samuel chapters 9 and 10. And as we go through these scriptures today, I'm going to stop and highlight these exciting truths for us that God's Word reveals, unpacking them a bit and helping us to see how they relate to our lives here today. <clears throat> now, before we get into this section of uh, scripture, I'd like to do a quick review of where we've been so far in 1 Samuel. Some of you uh, may not have been with us up to this point, or maybe you've missed a week or two in our journey here. And so let's just do a quick overview of where we've been. In 1 Samuel chapters 1 through 6, we found the nation of Israel playing Raiders of the Lost Ark with their arch enemies, the Philistines. Uh, the Philistines were a nation that bordered Israel to the south and west. And in chapter 4, Israel thought they could manipulate God into a military victory over the Philistines by using the Ark of the Covenant as the original weapon of mass destruction. And they thought that by using the ark, that they would have a certain victory over the Philistines. But God ends up punishing Israel for their misguided faith. Misguided faith in an object over him. And so Israel is defeated and the Philistines end up stealing the ark of the covenant. Well, God doesn't like that much either, so he punishes the Philistines for seven months with a plague of tumors and rats. And eventually the Philistines relent. They send the Ark of the Covenant back to Israel, who then in chapter 7, as a nation, come together and they repent of their sins and they return to their conviction that God alone is their Lord and Savior. And then last week then, in chapter 8, we saw how after 30 years had passed, a new generation rose up in Israel. And Israel's conviction and faith in the Lord suddenly turns again to compromise. And now Israel wants a king, an earthly king to lead them so they can be like all the other nations. Well, chapter 8 then ends with God telling Samuel that he will grant Israel's request for a king. And this is where we pick up the storyline here today. Now, if you would, I want to ask you to please open up your Bibles with me to 1 Samuel chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't worry about it. We have uh, Bibles in the seats in front of you. We're also going to have the passage on the screen behind me. You can follow along there. So if you would, let's begin by reading together from 1 Samuel chapter 9. And I'm going to start out reading verses 1 through 6. 1 Samuel 9 verses 1 through 6. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia of Benjamin. Man, aren't you glad you weren't born in that family? Holy cow. <laughs> he had a son named Saul, an impressive young man without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than any of the others. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. 
And Kish said to his son Saul, Take one of the servants with you and go and look for the donkeys. So he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find them. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find them. When they reached the district of Zoph, Saul said to the servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there is a man of God. He is highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. All right. Now, in this section of chapter 9, we are introduced to Saul the man who is soon to become the new king of Israel. You know, the reality is, though, at this point in Saul's life, Saul's actually closer to becoming the Burger King than he is to being Israel's king. I mean, think about it. What do we find Saul doing here in verses 1 through 6? What's he doing? He's chasing donkeys, right? He's a donkey wrangler. And this is obviously not his profession, He's on an errand here for his father looking for some lost donkeys. But the reality is at this point in the story, being the king of Israel is probably the furthest thing from Saul's mind. He, right now, is simply concerned about finding his lost donkeys. We do learn some interesting things about Saul here, though. We learn that Saul comes from a wealthy family. This is implied by the lengthy family genealogy we're given in verse 1. Furthermore, we learn that Saul was quite an impressive physical specimen. Ladies, think tall, dark, and handsome here. That was Saul. And the Bible says he was without equal among the Israelites. When the Israelites demanded a king back in chapter 8, a king like the other nations, somebody like Saul would have come to mind. Tall, strong, handsome. Somebody from a noble family. And Saul fits the bill perfectly. But again, at this point in his life, he has no idea what's coming. Right now, his biggest concern is chasing donkeys. But in verses 15 through 17, we find that something dramatically more significant is taking place in Saul's life. While Saul is busy chasing donkeys, God is working behind the scenes, orchestrating and unfolding his master plan for Saul's life, for the nation of Israel, and ultimately for the whole world. Let's jump ahead and read together from verses 15 through 17. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, Anoint him leader over my people, Israel. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, This is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. See, friends, what Saul didn't realize was that what he thought was nothing more than chasing donkeys was actually God's divine hand directing the course of his life to bring about God's will for him and for Israel. Verse 16 shows God speaking to Samuel, stating, 
I will send you a man. You see, friends, this passage here is not primarily about Saul or the nation of Israel or Samuel. Rather, this passage is ultimately about God and his sovereignty over history, nations, and even our individual lives. And this is why truth number one today from our passage is this. Chasing donkeys is sometimes more than chasing donkeys. Right? Let me explain that to you. Friends, what you need to understand is this. God is at work in the world. He's at work in the world even today. And God is working behind the scenes, working in lives, the lives of nations, the lives of individuals, to bring about his plans and purposes for history and for all of our lives. God says in Jeremiah 29.11, For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. In Acts 17.26, the Apostle Paul tells us that God determines the time set for us and the exact places where we shall live. Friends, your being here today is not an accident. God has determined the time set for us and the exact places where we shall live. In Proverbs 16.9, we read that it is the Lord who directs the steps of man. God directs our steps. And I could go on and on through Scripture, friends. God is in control. He was in control when Israel demanded a king. He was in control when Saul thought he was simply chasing donkeys. And God is still in control. And he's still working like this today, even in our lives. You know, sometimes those things that we may not think are anything more than coincidences or accidents or lucky breaks may actually be God's divine hand leading and guiding us. You know, even what we may consider to be just our normal daily routine may actually be a part of God's plan to bring about his purposes for our lives, to open up opportunities for us to serve him and to bring glory to his name. Friends, what to you might be nothing more than chasing donkeys may be a special work of God in your life. Don't ever discount that possibility. You know, I think about my own journey. In fact, coming here to Lakes Free, for example, Last week was my one-year anniversary here at Lakes Free. And as I think about my coming to Lakes Free, I see very clearly God's hand leading and guiding and orchestrating those events in my life and in this church. Three years ago, my wife and I and our kids, we moved out here to Lindstrom. I was a pastor at the time at a church in New Brighton, half hour away from here. And in our earthly human understanding, it didn't make a lot of sense for us to be led to move to Lindstrom when I was serving in a church a half hour away. You know, as a pastor, it's hard not to be serving and living in the community where, where your church is, where you're serving. But friends, we felt very clearly called to come to Lindstrom, even though it didn't make much sense to us at the time. We had been living in a townhouse in Lionel Lakes, and as we started having kids, we, we decided that we needed to have a little more space, and we started looking for single-family homes, and we quickly realized that everything in our particular area was either out of our price range or else it was, they were major projects, fixer-uppers, and you know I'm not much of a handyman, and 
So we gradually started extending our territory, looking for a home that would work for us. We ended up looking out in the Forest Lake area, and one afternoon while we were driving around, I, uh, the Lord literally popped into my mind my friends Wade and Roxy Carlson sitting back here. Uh, their son Matt was my roommate in college. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, the Carlsons, they're from Lindstrom. That's only another 10 minutes down the road. That's a, that's a neat little community. We should go check that out. And I kid you not, friends, we drove out here to Lindstrom that afternoon, a Saturday afternoon. And as soon as we got here, it was one of the clearest times in my entire life where I sensed God saying, Jason, this is exactly where you're supposed to be. And again, from my earthly human standpoint, it didn't make a lot of sense. Lord, my church is a half hour away. You want me to move here to Lindstrom? But I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt this is where God wanted us. The next week we came back with a realtor. In one day we found our house. And again, as soon as we saw that place and looked through it, it was like God said, this is it. This is where I want you. We made it work for a year and a half. We made the commute back and forth to my former church. And again, the whole time kind of, you know, not sure why God has us here. Until about uh, a year and a half ago, I got a call from my friend Wade Carlson. He said, Jason, you'll never believe it. We heard today in church that our former associate pastor here is going to be moving on. He's resigning. He said, Jason, would you ever have any interest in, in this position? And I said, well, yeah, I'd certainly be willing to look into it. You know. And two weeks later, I'm sitting in Pastor Rick's office meeting with him for the first time. A few weeks after that, I'm meeting with the search committee, and I go through the process for a few months with the search team. And Ultimately, I was invited to come and serve as the next associate pastor here at Lakes Free. And it was very interesting. Suddenly, those things that didn't make sense to me a year and a half earlier, all of a sudden made perfect sense. That God had brought us here. He was working. He was orchestrating his plan for our lives and for this church. It wasn't a mistake that we came to Lindstrom. God was directing our steps. And friends, I want to encourage you, the fact that God is at work in the world like this today should really excite us. I mean, this should excite us. Not that we should expect the miraculous or spectacular in every circumstance of our lives. But the fact is, oftentimes God is at work in our lives in ways that we do not fully realize or comprehend. What we think is chasing donkeys may be God unfolding a special plan in our lives or even through our lives. And I want to encourage you, friends, this truth is another reason why it is so important to cultivate your relationship with the Lord. Because as we get closer to the Lord, and the more time we spend with Him, and the more time we spend in His Word, the more we're able to discern God's will for our lives. And I guarantee you, friends, there is nothing more exciting than knowing and getting to see God making an impact through you for his kingdom. You know, to know that you've been caught up in God's master plan, it's an awesome thing. And I hope all of you get to experience that in your lives. Well, let's move on now to truth number two from our passage today. Truth number two is this. Our failures and disappointments are God's opportunities. Our failures and disappointments are God's opportunities. Last week in chapter 8, we saw Israel succumb to moral failure. They compromised their convictions and they turned their back on God as their true king, wanting instead an earthly king to lead them. And you know, friends, God had every right, every right to dump Israel for this rejection. And yet, that's not what he did. Because that's not who God is. 
That's not his nature. And yes, while Israel's sin had consequences, and we talked about those some last week, what we find here today in chapters 9 and 10 is the truth that we see so often in Scripture. That God is a God of love, a God of grace. And here in 1 Samuel 9 and 10, we see God taking Israel's failure, their compromise, and turning it into an opportunity for His grace to shine. Look again with me, if you would, at chapter 9, verses 15 through 16. Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him leader over my people. He will deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have looked upon my people, for their cry has reached me. Friends, Israel had just rejected God. And yet, here we see God's heart. Hearing the cries of his people working for their deliverance from their enemies and orchestrating the future monarchy of Israel from which would eventually bring salvation to the entire world through the greatest king of all, Jesus Christ. You know, Israel had fallen into sin. They had compromised the truth of God. And yet God continues to work on their behalf for their good because he's faithful and he's just. And he keeps his promises. And friends, I'll tell you something. God will do the same thing for you. He will. If you'll open your heart to him. Have you sinned? Have you compromised your convictions? If so, give your heart back to God. Confess your sins. And claim the promise of 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just, and he will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, God can turn your failure into his opportunity, his opportunity to change your life and make you whole again. That's his promise. But what about our disappointments? Where is God when life doesn't make sense? Where is God when our hearts are broken? When our future seems in doubt? You know, Samuel himself was a man who understood disappointment. In spite of the fact that Samuel was one of the godliest men in the history of Israel, he too experienced disappointment and heartbreak. Last week in chapter 8, we saw that Samuel's two sons had themselves fallen into sin. He had appointed them as judges to serve God in Israel. And yet in chapter 8, verse 3, we read that his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Not only this, but we learn that it was Samuel's two sons that motivated the nation of Israel to seek after an earthly king compromise because they no longer trusted in God's established system. Friends, this had to have broken Samuel's heart. For this man of God to see his two sons turn their backs on the Lord and cause the entire nation to compromise their conviction. Yeah, you know, I'm sure that Samuel understood disappointment. But just as God is faithful in our failures, He's also faithful in our disappointments. Samuel knew this, 
and he continued to walk in faith. And friends, I hope that you do too. I hope when your disappointments come that you'll rest in the promises of God. Promises such as Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. Promises like Isaiah 40, 31, where we're encouraged that those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. And then in Romans 8.28, we read that great promise. And we know that in all things, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You see, even in our disappointments, God is working on our behalf for our good to bring about his plans and purposes for our lives and for his kingdom. And while we don't always understand why life works out the way it does, my friends, we can trust that God knows. He's in control. And he is good. Back in uh, 1974, my father, Ron Carlson, uh, some of you know he's a Christian minister, an evangelist, an apologist. Back in 1974, my father was speaking in Monrovia, Liberia. He had been invited to hold large evangelistic crusades at the nation's largest soccer stadium. They are anticipating thousands of people during the week of his crusades. A few days prior to speaking at these crusades, my father got violently sick from the water there in Liberia. He came down with dysentery and violent vomiting and nausea, diarrhea. He was taken to a jungle hospital, which was run by the Sudan Interior Mission, a Christian mission hospital. He had been scheduled to speak in the largest soccer stadium in Liberia to thousands of people for the next week. And yet here he was, sick, in this jungle. My father recalls arguing with God, saying, God, what are you doing? God, don't you know I love you? Don't you know I want to serve you? God, why am I sick here in this hospital? I'm supposed to be speaking to thousands this week, sharing the gospel, proclaiming your name to thousands in the soccer stadium. And yet here I am sitting in this jungle hospital, sick. There was a uh, woman there at the hospital. She was not a Christian, but she was in a women's Bible study group with some of the missionary wives and workers there at the hospital. She heard about my father's condition, and she invited him to come and stay at her family's home for a few days while he recuperated prior to flying back to the States. That first night, her husband, a man by the name of Dr. Robert Patton, came home from being the chief surgeon at JFK Hospital in Monrovia. He was there on a contract with USAID working for the U.S. government. He was not a Christian. He had no spiritual upbringing. But he and my father talked about God and Jesus Christ all through dinner and then up till midnight that first night. He was just fascinated hearing the gospel, hearing the message of the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. This pattern went on for three nights between my father and Dr. Patton. On the third night, my father had the opportunity to pray with Dr. Patton there in his living room to receive Jesus Christ. The next night, my father prayed with Dr. Patton's wife and their three children. My father then went back to the States, and six months later, he received a letter from the Pattons saying that they had a desire to go to Bible school and learn more about God's Word. A year later, my father received another letter from Dr. Patton, 
saying that they felt the Lord was calling them to be missionaries. And at the end of the 1970s, Dr. Patton and his family moved to Suriname, South America. They learned Dutch and the Surinamese languages and started working at church planting, working in the hospitals there. They quickly realized that the Surinamese did not have a Bible in their own language. And so Dr. Patton learned both Greek and Hebrew so he could translate the Bible. In 2000, my father received a very humbling letter from Dr. Patton. Dr. Patton wrote to my father. He said, Ron, I wanted to thank you. I wanted to write and thank you for getting sick 25 years ago in Liberia. Because you were sick, I came to know Jesus Christ. My family came to know Jesus Christ. And I thought you would like to know that after 15 years of translating the Bible here, we will be publishing the Bible into the language of the Surinamese for the first time. My dad says he remembers crying the first time he read that letter, remembering 25 years earlier how in that jungle hospital he was arguing with God. God, why me? Why do you have me stuck here in this hospital? Don't you know I love you? Don't you know I want to serve you? God, don't you know I'm supposed to be speaking in these crusades this week? What are you allowing me to do? Why are you allowing me to be violently sick here in this hospital bed? God says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, to trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Lean not on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him, and He will make our path straight. Friends, I'll tell you something. It is when we do not understand why that we have to trust in God with all of our hearts. 25 years later, my father, 25 years earlier, my father had said, Why? 25 years later, God gave him the answer. See, friends, our failures and disappointments are often God's opportunities. So let me encourage you today. If you are in the midst of failure or disappointment, if you're discouraged today, I want to encourage you to remember the promises of God. Promises like Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. And when the disappointments come, trust in the Lord with all your heart. God knows. He's in control. And He is good. And lastly today, friends, truth number three from this section of Scripture Truth number three is this. No life is beyond God's transformational power. No life is beyond God's transformational power. Let's jump ahead a bit in the story and take a look now at 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Samuel has just anointed Saul king of Israel. And now God is going to begin a powerful work of transformation in Saul's life. 1 Samuel 10, verses 9 through 11. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. When they arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. The Spirit of God came upon him in power, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw him prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? God's Spirit came upon Saul and changed his heart. And this heart transformation produced visible outward changes as well. We're not quite sure what was happening here when we read that Saul began prophesying. 
Some speculate that he was speaking in tongues. Other commentators suggest that he was singing God's truths accompanied by music. But what we do know from these verses is that even Saul's friends couldn't believe the change that had taken place in his life. It was exactly as God had told Samuel back in verse 6. You, or as Samuel had told Saul back in verse 6. You will be changed into a different person. God changed Saul's heart. You know, isn't that awesome, friends? The power of God to change a person's life. You know, I don't think there's a greater joy for me as a pastor than when I get to see God work in a person's life to produce a genuine change of heart, a genuine change of character. What's amazing is how these inner changes are so often accompanied by radical outward changes as well. Like Saul, many people, it's like God gets a hold of them and it's almost like they're a completely different person. Today I thought it would be cool to have you hear from a friend of mine who's experienced this kind of transformation. I could share a bunch of stories uh, with us today about how God can transform a life, but I thought it would be neat to let you hear a first-hand account from one of our very own friends here at Lakes Free. I've invited Kevin Lubdahl to share his faith story with us today. And as we conclude our teaching time, I'm going to invite Kevin up, and after he's done sharing, I'll come back and share a few brief thoughts with us, and then we'll close our time in prayer. So, Kevin, would you uh, please come and share with us about how God has transformed your life? Exactly how we came to Lindstrom too. It's, it's like I was telling you. It's amazing. Um, anyway, my name is Kevin, and I would like to uh, share with you how God has transformed my life. Um, my life with drugs started in the summer of ninth grade. I wasn't very popular, but if you use drugs and like to party, and especially if you could get drugs, you became very popular very quickly. Um, I learned right away that if I sold these drugs that I had access to, didn't cost me anything to use them, and oftentimes I made money. Um, I didn't know I didn't know then that sin often carries a high hidden cost along with it. My life continued in this way for a very long time. I was arrested many times for things related to my drug use and alcohol. My lifestyle was reckless. Two days before high school graduation, I thought it would be fun to climb a telephone pole in a friend's backyard. When I was at the top of the pole, I slipped and I grabbed the wire that contained 12,800 volts. I fell 42 feet, which is about the height of the ceiling here. A friend of mine, it was there, beat on my heart, and got it started again. If I lived through the night, the doctors told my parents that I would most likely lose my arm and both feet from the amount of burns that I had. I ended up only losing my hand, but even this was not enough to make me wake up and see that my lifestyle was destroying me. 
My life with drugs just got bigger until I sold a large amount of speed to the FBI. I was charged with seven felonies, which carries a sentence of 105 years. Miraculously, I was only sentenced to one charge, and I served 11 months in sandstone, and I did three and a half years on uh, parole. This was still not enough to see my need for Jesus. I knew about Jesus. My mom had told me. She passed away a few weeks ago. And while I was going through her things, it says, To Kevin, side effect of a changed heart. Ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free from mom. John 8, 32. I didn't know then that the truth she was talking about was Jesus. I told her that if I tell the truth, Mom, I'm going to go to jail. And in verse 36, it says, So if the Son, which is Jesus, sets you free, you will be free indeed. And that's free from addiction and free from sin. I started dating my wife Jody a few months before I was arrested and she stayed with me during my time in Sandstone. A year or so later we married, started a family, um, nine years went by and we had two boys, we had a home in Andover and we had what looked like the good life. But my addiction to marijuana was larger than my love for my family. I had started to grow marijuana a few years earlier and my lifestyle was again getting me into major trouble. Jody and I were headed for divorce. In late 1991, Jody became a Christian and she prayed that God would do whatever it took to wake me up. She asked me if we could find a church uh, to have our youngest son baptized. We started going to Maranatha Free Lutheran Church in Coon Rapids and we, started, uh, we also started membership classes with Pastor Tunnis. Many people were praying for me during this time, and growing marijuana and studying the Bible doesn't go very well together. God was about to shake up my life. We decided to take a trip to Florida to see if, if we could find a way to keep our family together. While we were there, the police raided my home and other homes involved in growing marijuana. I knew I was in a lot of trouble, and I thought I was going to get arrested when I got off the plane. So on the ride back, I surrendered my life to Jesus Christ. I asked him for forgiveness. I knew this would be hard. I asked him to take control. At that moment, I was set free. I was set free from my addiction. I was 35 years old. I was on my way back to jail. And in human terms, my life was ruined. And yet I was overjoyed for what God had done to transform my life. Strangely, when we landed in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, there were no police. The next day I got a lawyer, and he told me that realistically I was looking at 20 years in prison. We turned to our church. We prayed for God to show us what to do. We 
asked Pastor Tunis and other Christians for counsel. Our pastor told us that when I go to jail, the church was going to take care of my family. I know. I'd only known these people for a few months. But God knew exactly what I needed at that time. He was preparing the way. The next day I began to clean up my life. I burned stacks of pornography and the drugs that the police didn't find. I went to everyone I knew and I told them about what Jesus had done. I started studying the Bible and I waited. Eleven months went by. The grand jury indicted everyone involved except for me. I had no explanation on why I was not charged other than a miracle of God's grace. Because of my experience, I came to see God's truth in a new way. I was like the lost son in the story of the prodigal son, but God was my father who was waiting for me and is willing to take me back. And I came to see that God has a plan for our, my life, just like it says in Jeremiah 29:11. It's been 18 years since Jesus transformed my life. He's given me back more than I can ever imagine. He's restored my marriage. He's allowed me to keep my business. He's given me many opportunities to serve him. And about two and a half years ago, he asked me to go back to jail. This time, to tell other inmates about Jesus. God has transformed my life, and now he is using me to help others to see that he can change their lives too. I am so thankful for what God has done for me. I will never stop sharing with others about how Jesus can set them free. Thank you. Isn't that great? Praise the Lord for you, Kevin. Friends, God is in control, and he is good. Amen? Friends, I want to tell you, God is still in the business of changing lives. No life is beyond God's transformational power. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. If you're here today and you know in your heart that you need God to transform your life, my friend, you need to call out to Jesus. He's the only one who has the power to genuinely transform a person's life. He did it for Kevin. He did it for me. And I know that God can do it for you as well. Sometimes he does this instantaneously. Sometimes it's a process. But transformation is possible through the power of Jesus Christ and God's Spirit at work in your life. In a moment, I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And if you're here today and you know you need God's transformational power to work in your life, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond while we pray. And I pray you do, friend. 
Because I want you to know what so many of us in this room here know today. That God is in control. And he is good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, your goodness, your faithfulness, how you direct our paths, how you guide us in our lives, how you have a plan and purpose for each and every one of us, how you have the power to transform lives. God, you are awesome and amazing. And we do not deserve your goodness or your grace, but it's who you are. It's your nature. You love us. You want us. You want to restore us. Heavenly Father, if there's anybody here this morning who needs your transformational power to work in their lives, I pray that here this morning they would call out to you in prayer. There might be somebody here today who maybe knows they don't even have a relationship with you this morning. And maybe for them it's simply praying a simple prayer of faith. Lord, I need you. I need you to forgive me. And I need you to transform my life, and I want to live in a relationship with you. There might be others here today, Lord, who need your transformation at work in their lives, in their character, maybe a habit that they've been uh, caught up in, an addiction, Lord, and they need you to transform that. Maybe there's somebody here today who needs your transformational power to work in their family, in their marriage. And Lord, I pray that they would call out to you for your help today. You do have the power to change lives. We know this is true. Father, we would like for nothing more than to see your power unleashed and to bring transformation to everyone here who needs it today. Friends, if you need that transformational power, I'd just like to invite you to pray with me right now in in the silence of your own heart. You can pray a simple prayer. Just follow along with me. Say, Lord Jesus, I need you today transform my life. Father, I want a relationship with you. I know I'm a sinner and I need the salvation that you offer in Jesus Christ. I need you to transform my life. If you need God's power to transform an addiction or a behavior you've been caught up in, pray with me now, Lord Jesus, I need you to transform my life. I can't do this on my own, Father. I need you to deliver me from this addiction. Please transform me, Jesus. If you need God's transformational power to work in a relationship or in your marriage, pray with me right now. Lord Jesus, I need you to transform this relationship. Father, we can't do this alone. We need your help. Please restore us. Restore this relationship. Restore our marriage. Friends, God knows your heart. The words don't matter. God knows your heart. And if you pray that prayer in faith, I know that God will meet you and he will begin a process of transforming your life. We thank you, Jesus, for that. We thank you for who you are, for your faithfulness and your goodness.